But the Bible reading this evening is from 1 Samuel chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. Then David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favour in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this, or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives, and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, Whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. So David said, Look, tomorrow is the new moon feast, and I am supposed to dine with the king. But let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him, David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. And if he says, very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty... Then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said, if I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? David asked, Who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Come, Jonathan said, let us go into the field. So they went there together. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed towards you, I will not send you word and let you know. But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. Moving down to verse 24. So David hid in the field, and when the new moon feast came, the king sat down to eat. He sat in his customary place by the wall, opposite Jonathan, and Abner sat next, next to Saul, but David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day, for he thought, Something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely he is unclean. 
But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. Then Saul said to his son Jonathan, Why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town, and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I have found favour in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. That is why he has not come to the king's table. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. As we leave that passage, consider these verses from Psalm 2, verses 10 to 12, a salutary reminder of God's sovereignty. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, let me add my welcome to Matt's. If you're new or visiting, my name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. It's great to have you with us tonight as we continue in this series in 1 Samuel. We are going to look across chapters 18 to 20, but the focus will be chapter 20 uh, as we come to it. Before I do pray and we have a look at this passage together, just one further announcement to be aware of, uh, another sort of mission-focused announcement. Our missions team um, that plans and cares for all our partner missionaries is having their monthly prayer meeting. It's coming up this coming Saturday. It'll be 4 to 5 p.m. at Rowley and Teresa Taylor's house. Uh, they live uh, in Fairy Meadow. We can get those details with you. Um, but Tim and Beck Kime, uh, who are back from Cambodia, you may have seen them last week, uh, will be at that meeting and the focus will be praying for them. So if you'd like to be part of that, you come and chat to me after. I can give you more details if necessary. But let's pray, ask for God's help as uh, we look at this passage, which is really challenging as we reflect on it for ourselves. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word to us. We acknowledge that it judges even the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. And we do ask tonight that you might be at work in us by your Holy Spirit, encouraging us where needed, but challenging us too as we see the need to respond rightly to your anointed king. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, according to an ancient Greek legend, there were two rival runners at an athletic event at a meet with many others. And the race took place, a running race. One of them won, but the man who came second was just overcome with envy that his rival had won this great race. Of course, the rival was showered with praise, and eventually a great statue was built in his honour as well. 
But that only meant that envy ate away all the more at the man who placed second. He came to despise the man that had beaten him. And he said in his mind that he would knock down the statue that had been erected. He would go out night after night and chisel at the base until eventually it would teeter over and topple down. Well, one night he got too far, too carried away with his chiseling in his anger and jealousy. And the whole statue did fall down, but landed on him. And he was killed by the replica of the man that he had grown to hate. Well, it's a legend, a myth that's got a strong point to it. And the point is this, the green-eyed monster that is envy always leads to bitterness and loss. And that is the driving emotion in chapters 18 to 20 as we look at 1 Samuel tonight. Saul's jealousy towards David. It starts back in chapter 18. You may remember last week after the great victory that David had over Goliath. Um, the Philistines were routed and great attention was given to David in the aftermath of that. And Saul became jealous. But it only grows through these chapters that we'll consider tonight. And it raises a question for us as we look at this section what should the response be to God's anointed? How are we to respond to God's anointed king? Saul responded with envy, but how are people meant to respond to God's anointed, God's chosen king? Well, the first answer to that question tonight is this. They are to respond with submission, not opposition. With submission rather than opposition. Have a look with me these verses from 7 to 9 in chapter 18, how Saul's jealousy grows and leads to opposition. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Saul had been the king for some time, as we know, as we know, and no doubt he had received a lot of acclaim from the people. There had been various military victories already to this point. And suddenly, his pride leads to him being angered as he hears acclaim going to this youthful David. The strange thing is that if we were to go back in time just briefly before this, it was Saul himself who invited David into his royal court. In fact, David has become the best friend of his son, Jonathan. Indeed, Saul has gone to the effort of giving one of his daughters, Michal, to him in marriage. And so how has this suddenly come about that Saul has turned on him? Well, we need to remember too that back in chapter 15, God had said that he was taking the kingdom away from Saul. It was promised that God had chosen a man after his own heart. There was a successor that God would now favor and not Saul. And so perhaps as Saul hears this refrain and his jealousy has spiked, he suddenly, it dawns on him that perhaps this youth is the one that's chosen. Perhaps this is the one that God is going to use to replace him. And so jealousy soon leads to threats on David's life. It gets stronger and stronger. Have a look at these two verses from towards the end of chapter 18, verse 12 and then especially in verse 29. They're very instructive about Saul's insecurity 
and an explanation of all that's going to follow in the remainder of the book of 1 Samuel. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but he had left Saul. In verse 29, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy for the rest of his days. You see, his jealousy and anger boils over in chapter 18 and he tries to pin David to the wall with his spear privately in his own quarters. He was going to take him out. Threat would be removed. But he fails. David avoids it, escapes at that time. And by chapter 19, Saul's given up on just trying to execute David privately. He makes it public. He just is happy to chase David and seek to kill him openly before the people. And the result is that Saul creates huge division in his own family. As I just mentioned, his own son is best friends with David. His daughter is married to him and they are quite devoted to David. And so there's this huge problem that's building within his own family. And so with that summary of what's been happening in chapters 18 and 19, I want us to focus tonight on chapter 20. And at the start of chapter 20, David goes to see his good friend Jonathan and provides this very emotional summary of the state of play in verse 1. Notice again what he said to his friend. What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to take my life? And in verse 2, Jonathan's surprised by these allegations. He's naive enough to think that Saul won't try and kill his best friend without telling him. You know, <laughs> Jonathan says, no, look, Saul, my father, he doesn't do anything without first consulting me. And David points out to him that that's perhaps a blind spot for Jonathan and that, that you know, Saul is really after his life. And he convinces him that there is a real issue going on. It seems Jonathan had been unaware of Saul's personal attempts and even his army to kill David. But it seems here, even given all that's been unfolding in chapters 18 and 19, that David is really reluctant to flee. He wants to stay uh, near Saul and Jonathan. He doesn't want to have to flee and be on the run unless it's completely unavoidable. And unless Jonathan himself can see that there's just no other way for David to move forward. And so they set up a test, don't they? There's a feast to be held. David is supposed to be at it. He'll have to be at the king's table along with Jonathan and Abner and another whole bunch of other key people within uh, the entourage of Saul. But they've set up a plan by which David won't go to it. Jonathan will be there. And if Saul notices David's absence, then they'll have this ready-made excuse that Jonathan will offer um, that, David has to go back to his hometown of Bethlehem. There's a sacrifice happening there. His family has called him to be there. And so he just can't be present at the king's table. And depending on the reaction that comes from Saul, they'll know whether Saul's final intent is to harm David or whether he's going to soften his mood. If he's angry, then they'll know that David needs to flee. If he's unconcerned about David's absence, then things are all right. And after consulting and talking through this, the scene changes from verse 11 and they head out into the fields. And they try and then work out also what will be the sign to David. Um, if things don't go well in that discussion, how does David know to flee and get away? And so they arrange this archery practice that Jonathan will do with his armor bearer. He'll fire arrows out and he'll call out, no, it's further beyond you. And David will know that he needs to run for his life. 
but also while they're out in the field, what we see is Jonathan's submission to God's chosen king. I mean, Jonathan himself had a lot to lose here. He was supposed to be the next king. He was the son of Saul. But he had already accepted at the start of chapter 18 that God had chosen David. He'd already given David his royal robe and some of his armor as a sign of his allegiance to David rather than his father. And they renew their covenant, their agreement in verses um, 12 to 17. They have this discussion and instead of David worrying about his life being protected, Jonathan actually says to David, when you become king, make sure that you continue to be kind to me. Such is his submission to God's plan and his trust in the king that God has chosen. And of course, it's such a sharp contrast, isn't it, to his father. His father who simply responds to David with fierce opposition. He does not see him as God's anointed, as the Christ or the Messiah in Hebrew. He simply is a threat that he wants to get rid of. And isn't that something that we've seen all down through history? History is littered with these kind of stories. In 1999, uh, my wife Christine and I got to visit England, and while we were there, we went to Warwick Castle. Perhaps some of you have seen this or been there. It's an interesting place, mostly because of the history of the Earls of Warwick, their involvement in the political intrigue um, for the crown in England. Uh, one of them was very heavily involved in the War of the Roses. You may have heard about that time during the 1450s where there was really a battle between two families as to who would be the next king of England. And the Earl of Warwick at the time, Richard Neville, earned the title of the kingmaker because he would alternately back different families or different ones, whoever he could be on side with that he thought would be the winner of the battle. But of course, playing those kind of games also creates a sense that you're a threat within the makeup of what's going to unfold. And Earl of Warwick, Richard Neville, managed to um, have one of his daughters marry into King Richard's family. Uh, but when his uh, daughter's son, George, became Earl of Warwick, Richard III thought, this is just too dangerous. I can't be having this guy sitting over in the wings here who's going to be a threat to me. And so from the age of eight, he imprisoned him. He held him till he was 25 and then he beheaded him. Problem solved. No threat. Now, I know it's a gruesome um, tale, a very cruel one, but hasn't history repeated that over and over and over? You remove rivals and then they are no threat to you. And here we are, the very first king of Israel, after asking for a king like the nations. And how is he behaving? Well, just like the kings of the nations. He's gone straight to wanting to knock off rivals. The mountain who is supposed to rule under God. There's just one problem with Saul's plan, isn't there? I mean, David's not some usurper. He's not some sudden upstart. God has chosen him. Samuel the prophet has anointed him. He is going to be king whether Saul likes it or not. And so what Saul is doing here is standing against God and his plans. And so the question of submission is raised by this whole first section. Jonathan submits to God's chosen one. Saul refuses to. And that brings us to a second answer to this question of how to respond to God's anointed one. How do we respond? Secondly, with devoted service. Not only with submission, 
but with devoted service. You see, the events of the remainder of chapter 20 are quite simple. They unfold as predicted in what we've already seen. Uh, David and Jonathan's plan unfolds. Uh, Jonathan goes off to the feast. He's there at the table. Saul doesn't comment the first day. He allows some grace. He thinks, oh, well, maybe David's ceremonially unclean. He hasn't come, but he'll be here on day two. David doesn't turn up again day two, and the anger and jealousy that's just under the surface boils up. And he can't help himself but ask his son, Jonathan, well, where's David? Why isn't he here? And Saul's extreme hostility proves to be unchanging. The crucial discussion comes from verses 27 to 31. Um, Jonathan offers the prearranged excuse. Oh, look, David had to go off to Bethlehem. He asked me especially if that was okay. I said yes. And we get Saul's response in verse 30 and 31. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send and bring him for me because he must die. I would have thought that was pretty clear cut. Jonathan wasn't so sure. <laughs> he wanted to go into bat for David, even at that point. Verse 32, he starts defending David. Look, he's really not that bad. Remember, you used to like him. Surely you don't want to do that. And the response from Saul in verse 33 is to pick up his spear and to go for his own son. He tries to spear Jonathan to death. Jonathan avoids it, heads out of the party naturally, and goes off to warn David. Poor Jonathan, who's been trying to support both of them, sort of honour his father Saul, even though he acknowledges that God has chosen David, is left with no other option. But you see, as Jonathan serves David now, it comes at great risk. He doesn't renege on his promise. He immediately goes out to warn David to get out of here. No matter the cost that might come to Jonathan, even if Saul was chasing him or members of his army, he's going to go and warn God's chosen one. He serves him. And so the prearranged archery practice takes place. There's a final emotional farewell between David and Jonathan, and David flees. And again, there's this huge contrast, isn't there, between Saul and his son. Saul is jealous and opposes David. He's certainly not going to serve him. Jonathan is very generous and he serves him devotedly, even though David will take his very place as the next king. And notice that Saul's words in verse 31 show us that he still wants Jonathan to be king. He knows that God has already told him way back through the prophet Samuel in chapter 13 that his son would not be king. But he simply rejects God's plans. He's chosen to stand against them. He's going to go against the anointed one, even to his own grief. And I think as we read and we look at these flawed characters, we can think, well, the answer simply is, well, we should be generous like Jonathan and not jealous like Saul. But the real point here is that Jonathan will submit to God's anointed chosen king and he'll be devoted to him in service. This is the right response to God's plan, to God's Messiah. Sometimes serving the chosen one, the king, comes at great cost. 
I know if you've seen the movie The King's Speech that came out uh, many years ago, now Colin Firth plays King George VI, who is trying to cope with a stammer. Um, he sees Lionel Logue, an Australian speech therapist, played by Geoffrey Rush. But Lionel's service comes at a cost. He doesn't have all the great degrees to show off. His credentials are questioned, certainly by King George's advisors, but even by King George himself. He goes the first time and he has these unusual methods. And King George is really ready to throw his hands up. He's not interested in how Lionel's going to help him. Later, when he's helping him, his advisors say, no, 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 you shouldn't be listening to this guy. Ignore him. And despite all these rejections over and over, Lionel continues to offer his help and he will go on to assist him in the coronation ceremony that he might be able to speak clearly at that event. And then after that, as World War II is announced in 1939 and King George has to offer the first speech on behalf of the nation and let England know what has taken place, Lionel Logue is by his side to help him deliver that moment. And he'll actually help him through every speech in World War II. There's some small text on the final couple of um, frames of the movie you may have noticed that actually highlights that in this true story, Lionel was acknowledged for his service to the king. Indeed, in 1944, he was made a commander of the Royal Victorian Order. It's the only order that exists in England that is specifically a reward for personal service to the king, personal service. Well, that's the kind of attitude that Jonathan had, but it came at cost, and many did not understand it. And that brings us to our final point, our third and final point. I want to apply these events to ourselves now, to think more concretely what it means for us today. And the point is submission and service to Christ. Submission and service to the Christ. You see, after David becomes king, in 2 Samuel 7 verse 16, God says to David, Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now we know down the track that the tribe of Judah, the southern kingdom, would eventually be exiled to Babylon. There would be this whole period where there was no son of David ruling over Israel. So there's a break, if you like, in the physical line of kings. But this promise did not fail because it was always looking beyond these physical kings of Israel to one who had come much later, the great, 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 great son of David, the Lord Jesus himself. He is the one who fulfills this. So the question as we apply these two truths of submission and service to ourselves is how we're going in our response to King Jesus. Have we recognized God's anointed king and submitted our lives to him truly? What would it look like to submit your life to Jesus fully? Well, let me take you to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. It's all about Christ and it tells us about how we should respond. It's written at the time of David, talks about a promised king who will rule eternally and instructs us how we're to respond rightly, for rulers and leaders to respond, but indeed anybody. In the first half of Psalm 2, it's all about humanity's rebellion against God. They turn their back on God and God's solution is to install his king on his holy hill. 
And then from verse 10 to verse 12, we're told how it is that humanity is supposed to respond to his king, the Christ. Verse 10, Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You notice as you read those verses that you simply have to get on board with God's chosen king. If you stand outside of him, then there is no refuge. You stand under God's wrath and there is no protection from it. We need to recognize God's anointed king to kiss the son, to accept his rule. That's the picture that's being given there. And when Jesus came and fulfilled this psalm, the apostle John picked up some of this theme and explained our need to accept God's son, the eternal king, with these words. John 3 verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. And so the question for us tonight is whether we have accepted God's King Jesus or whether we're fighting against him, rejecting God's plans, just like Saul kept rejecting God's chosen man, David, the anointed one who was simply a shadow of Jesus, the Christ to come. And you notice how John 3 explains what Psalm 2 doesn't. I mean, how is it that we can take refuge under God's chosen king? How are we protected? Well, God's plan was that his son might die on the cross and bear the punishment that we deserve for our rebellion, for our rejection of God and his chosen king. This is how we're saved. He died to pay for our sin and then he was raised to life for our justification. And so we are protected from God's judgment. We enter into refuge as we place our trust in Jesus who bore our sin as our substitute. This is how Jesus was coronated. It was through his crucifixion. This is how his glory and power is displayed. But it's just so unlike the rulers of this world. And so often the people of our world today and over the past 20 centuries have often looked at the crucifixion and what they see is weakness. They don't see God's perfect king, the one installed on his holy hill outside of Jerusalem. His kingdom ushered in by his death, but his resurrection demonstrating his power. What we're used to is pomp and ceremony, aren't we? Royal coronations, royal weddings of those who will later be queen or king. Well, they're all about gold chariots and thousands upon thousands of people watching. You know, millions of us watched uh, Prince Charles and Princess Diana get married in 1981. You know, it is still the third highest TV event in Australian history. That wedding ceremony in 1981. You may say, why? It hadn't been a royal wedding for a while, I guess. But Prince Charles is the potential future monarch. That's why it's important. It's not just John Smith from down the street. And that's why in 2011, when William and Kate tied the knot, it was another global television event, because he's the second in line to the throne. 
after Queen Elizabeth goes at some point. This is the kind of pomp and ceremony, the expectation we have of a king being unveiled. But you see, Jesus' coronation was so different. His moment of triumph looked like a moment of weakness. I guess the challenge is, so often we can be drawn into that thinking. That's so often how the world perceives Christ. Some nobody that was crucified, some victim of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago. But the truth is that the crown of thorns, his crown, was one that he wore so that he might offer new life to all those that would trust in him. The Lord of all eternity, the eternal Son coming and offering life to those who would place their trust in him, God's chosen King. Well, there's no refuge outside him. So I guess the question tonight is, if you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, could you consider afresh God's love extended to you in the sending of his Son? Please chat with somebody tonight. Don't leave without thinking further about the importance of submitting your life to his rule, the one who has not only dealt with your greatest need of forgiveness before a holy God, but who will take you into eternity to be with you if only you will place your trust in him. And that brings us to a second application, an application specifically for those who have already placed their trust in Jesus. For any Christians here tonight, you might have noticed in verse 11 of Psalm 2 that we're not only called to submit ourselves to God's king, but we're called to serve him. You notice verse 11, serve the Lord with fear. Again, just as Saul was so busy rejecting God's anointed king while Jonathan was accepting him, Saul would have nothing to do with David wanting to kill him while Jonathan was devoted in his service. Again, their reactions to David foreshadow two possible reactions to God's chosen King Jesus. See, this second application is that if you have taken refuge in Christ as your saviour by trusting in his death and resurrection, are you serving Jesus, even at great cost, as it was for Jonathan? You know, it's a theme which is taken up over and over in the New Testament. Um, So often we can want to have Jesus on our terms. We love the idea of forgiveness but of actually giving our life in complete service to him, well, that can sometimes be a bridge too far. But over and over in the New Testament, Jesus wants to say to those who will be his disciples, who will come after him, take up your cross and follow me. My way is a way of service and cost. Let me take you to one passage, Matthew 8, verses 19 to 22. One of many sharp words from Jesus in the New Testament speaking to two would-be disciples that came to him, offering some kind of devotion and service. Notice how he challenged them. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me 
and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, we haven't got time to unpack these verses fully, but there's a basic point that is simple enough that's being made. Here are two disciples coming to Jesus, offering some devotion and desire to serve and follow him. And Jesus is rebuking both of them, or at least challenging their commitment. In, but there are two different problems here. The first, it seems the person is too quick to promise. It's all words. Yeah, yeah, I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus. And Jesus is like, hang up. <laughs> hang on a moment. Have you counted the cost? Do you know what you're promising? And in the second case, it's somebody who's too slow to act. Look, I really want to follow you, Jesus, but... You know, I've got other responsibilities. It's very likely in the scenario here in Matthew 8 that his father is well and truly alive or he wouldn't be standing there in front of Jesus. And indeed, his father may not die for another 10 or 20 years. So what the man is saying to him is, look, you know, I'm too busy now and I've got other responsibilities to care for my family. But after my parents pass on and everything is squared away, well, then I'll be ready to come and follow you, Jesus. So how about that? And Jesus says, forget it. Follow me now. Now, perhaps we don't talk enough about Jesus' authority and our need to serve him. We're saved by grace, God's undeserved kindness, not by works. But God's grace will always lead to serving him out of love. I think we often avoid talking about works because we fear that we'll come across as legalistic. But the danger then is that we'll end up preaching a cheap grace a forgiveness that comes with no responsibility, no desire to actually submit to Jesus as Lord. We want Jesus as Saviour, but we don't want him as Lord over our lives. You know, the most famous passage in the New Testament about God's grace and salvation by grace would have to be Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. It's by grace that we have been saved, not by works, so that no one can boast. But what is the verse that follows immediately after that in verse 10? It's about serving God. The Apostle Paul writes, Ephesians 2 verse 10, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. See, here's the problem. I think at times we tend to look at the Christian life like it's going to visit a cafe. It's all about our enjoyment when we go to a cafe, isn't it? I want to sit down. I want to order what coffee I want. Is it going to be a cappuccino or a flat white or a macchiato? Do I just want to be offered warm milk enough for a decaf latte? Um, you know, and then what am I going to eat with it? They've got so many choices. There's all these cakes or there's muffins, there's blueberry, there's lemon poppy seed, there's apricot. Sounds like I've been once or twice before, and maybe you have too. And we're there to enjoy it. We just want to lap that up. It's my time to enjoy things. And so often we can look at the Christian life in this way. It's so nice. I love coming to church because, well, my friends are there. It's a really good social time. I love the idea that God offers forgiveness, that he loves me, that he's got a place for me in heaven. But when it comes to serving, when it comes to laying down my life for Jesus, well, that's just not on my menu. I'm not going to choose that. And so I want Christ, but I want to have him on my terms. But the Christian life requires discipline. It requires commitment. It requires a long obedience in the same direction. The Christian life is not about you having Jesus on your terms. It's about him having you on his. Look, I want to ask you, and I ask myself this same question, 
What sort of resolutions have you made about serving Jesus? Now, look, you may not have written them down, but you will have them just the same. They're in your head. You'll have determined how much you're going to submit yourself to Jesus. See, have you determined to follow Jesus in everything or only when it suits you? Are you anxious to understand the Bible, to really understand all that God has given us and to conform your life to it day by day? Or do you really want to maintain an independent mind, not submit to everything that God's got to say? Are you looking for ways to serve Jesus? To use the life that he has given you for his glory? Or are you just wondering day to day, week to week, how your life can be comfortable in this world? How would you test where you stand in your service of Jesus? Let me give you one example, one litmus test that you might apply. You tell me, how many hours have you spent thinking about the development of your career or your next job or perhaps your plans for retirement if you're nearing that age or are there already or perhaps the holiday that you've got planned at the end of this year or next year? How many hours have you spent planning those things versus the amount of hours you've spent praying about how you might more fully serve Jesus? You do the math. Are such things indicative of our hearts? With what sort of resolve are you living the Christian life? See, I want to say to you tonight, living the Christian life is serious, it's demanding. If it's not, then the question is, is it the Christian life that we're living? And is it Jesus that we're really serving? Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to acknowledge that just like you called those in Israel to submit and serve your chosen king, your anointed one, your Christ, so we are called to submit and serve the ones who they simply foreshadowed, your eternal son, the Lord Jesus, the Christ. Lord, we pray that you might help us. We want to acknowledge now that we're frail, that we often get distracted in this world. Lord, we pray that you might strengthen us by your spirit, that we may truly live in a way that shows our submission to Jesus as the Lord of our life, that you might help us to grow in our desire of serving him rather than simply serving ourselves. Help us this day, this week we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.